we think about what our Lord and Savior went through, it should get us every time. But the wonderful news is, though he went and he suffered, died, Jesus didn't stay dead. Amen. He suffered that for us. He didn't have to do that. He willingly went to Calvary's cross and he suffered on our behalf. He paid the penalty of our sin. He bore our shame, our guilt. He died. And three days later, he rose again. And that's what makes Easter such a wonderful time of the year. In fact, Easter should be Christian's celebrated holiday it's always kind of strange to me that we we actually put more more time and energy in Christmas but you know only two of the gospels say anything about the the birth of Jesus but all four gospels and uh, most of the epistles mention his resurrection the resurrection is so key to the Christian faith Yes, birth was important, absolutely. But the greatest truth of all is that Jesus died, was buried, and raised again according to the Scriptures. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. This is part 2 of a message we started last week. Evidence of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the pew Bibles there and turn to page 903 in the pew Bible. Page 903 in the pew Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, then we invite you to take that Bible with you, and that's our gift to you this morning. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. So page 903 in the pew Bible. There are a number of ways that we can prove something, anything. Different ways to prove things. Uh, one is, of course, the scientific method. If you think about the scientific method, this is something that takes place typically in labs, uh, for instance. Scientific method is all about experiment, observation, and then recording the data, whatever the experiment's the experiment may show so it's all observing something taking taking place in the moment that's one way that we can learn certain facts about things but another way that that we learn evidence that we learn the truth of a matter is by accumulating evidence for instance in a courtroom in a courtroom, you, you can't really use the scientific method because the action has already taken place, right? That you can't observe a crime being committed. Uh, you, you have to uh, accumulate evidence. So the, the action that, that you're, you're learning the truth of in a court setting has already taken place. It took place in a past. You're, you're looking at a, a past event. And so you have to accumulate evidence to prove whether something took place or not. Now, in a courtroom, there's a couple of kinds of evidence. There's circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence uh, maybe suggests a fact, 
by implication or inference, right? So you, you wake up one morning and there's big tire tracks, mud tire tracks in your yard. And your neighbor has mud tires. Well, that's circumstantial evidence, right? It, it, it kind of makes you look his way because he's got tires that kind of fit the ruts that are in your front yard, but it's circumstantial. You, you can't submit that in court. It's not admissible in court. That's not going to, you can't prove that he caused those ruts in your yard, right? It's circumstantial. And if we've all watched enough crime shows on TV that we know circumstantial evidence is not worth much. It can kind of give investigators direction and in which way to look at something, but it, it's not admissible in court. What the court wants is direct evidence, evidence that speaks for itself. It directly supports the truth of an assertion. So you have forensic evidence. You have fingerprints, DNA, and things such as that. Uh, there's, you know, instrumental evidence if you will there's the murder weapon right the, the police have found the murder weapon and they submit that as evidence in a, a trial but then there's eyewitness testimony and eyewitness testimony is the best evidence to have right if you can find a credible witnesses multiple credible witnesses that saw the crime taking place and they can say yes i saw this person do this at this time man that's the best evidence to have so that's evidence in the court of law similar to that is evidence in proving a the historicity of an event it's very much like that of a, of a court trial. When you're trying to look at the past, look at history, and trying to figure out, all right, what took place? How did certain things unfold? How did events in history unfold? Well, you, you have to go back. You have to accumulate evidence. You can't go back and observe the event. We can't go back in a time machine and, and, and see the event taking place. But we have to accumulate evidence. We have to look at artifacts. Artifacts that come to us from that time period. And we look at eyewitness accounts. Those who were there. Those who lived through it. Those who made a record of what took place. What did they say about the event? That's the way that we have to learn about historical events. We cannot use the scientific method to determine if something took place back in, in history because we can't observe it. Instead, we have to accumulate the evidence. With the bodily uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ, direct evidence, when we begin to accumulate all of the direct evidence to the historicity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that evidence demands an affirmative judgment. It absolutely demands an affirmative judgment. Now last week as we began to look at this, as we began our study, we talked about, I, I told you this quote from the Jesus seminars, those liberal scholars who got together in the 80s and 90s and, and they looked at uh, the Bible and basically they, they voted whether something took place or not, 
right? They, that's just their vote. We vote that it happened or it did not happen. And, and they were bound by critical scholarship, secular scholarship. If something is supernatural, well, we can't have that because we can only affirm that which takes place in history, that which we can, uh, we can come back and, and we can recreate the scene, right? And so they had to do away with anything that was supernatural. And so for the Jesus seminars, the participants of the Jesus seminar, they came out with a statement and said, whatever Jesus' followers experienced after the crucifixion, it happened in their hearts and minds, not as a matter of history. Well, the problem with that statement is what we see recorded in Scripture is absolutely in contradiction to that statement. As we're going to see today, as Paul is testifying to the, the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection, they did not believe it in their hearts and minds. They saw it. They experienced it. They watched it with their own eyes. They saw Jesus in the flesh. They weren't talking about feelings and emotions. They weren't talking about a philosophy. They were talking about an event that took place in their lifetime, and they witnessed it. Other non-Christian liberal scholars, uh, honestly more responsible in their research, in my view, have considered the evidence and determined that Jesus' disciples at least believed they experienced Jesus' resurrection, his bodily resurrection. One non-Christian New Testament scholar named Paula uh, Fredrickson stated, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then, uh, and then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attest to their conviction that that's what they saw. Now she goes on to say, I'm not saying that's what they really did see. Not that they really saw the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, that they must have seen something. Right? She at least gets it. They... they saw something she doesn't say it was a feeling it was a philosophy she realizes and many other secular scholars even realize that what the disciples saw they they saw something right they testified that they actually saw something and so we have to understand that and we have to look at the evidence now, last week and today, we are considering the evidence of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And as I said last week, the doctrine of the resurrection is essential, absolutely essential to the Christian faith. The doctrine of the resurrection is key to the doctrine of salvation. Romans 10, 9 Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, a bodily resurrection, you will be saved. If you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no way you can be saved. Scripture is clear on that fact. 
the doctrine of resurrection is, is key to many other doctrines of the Christian faith. As John MacArthur says, if the resurrection is eliminated, the life-giving power of the gospel is eliminated, the deity of Christ is eliminated, salvation from sin is eliminated, and eternal life is eliminated. It's all gone without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection is just a philosophy or a feeling, then the, all of that stuff is off the table. And we of all people on the earth are most to be pitied. Thus we see that Satan consistently attacks the doctrine of, resurrect, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ over and over and over again throughout Christian history. It is being a key doctrine of attack. So we need our faith firmly grounded in the evidence of the resurrection so that we can withstand all of those attacks. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, we see that the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is evident by the manifold, the multiple witnesses of his resurrection. The truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is evident by the uh, manifold witnesses of his resurrection. It's not blind faith. There's evidence of his resurrection. And Paul here in our text, in this little paragraph, two paragraphs here, gives us five evidences of the resurrection. Now last week, we looked at the first two of those evidences. First is the testimony of the church. The testimony of the church. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here Paul preached the gospel, right? The gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and people believed it. There was something about the resurrection, the, the message of the resurrection that, that rung true for them. They believed it. They received it. They stood in it. And not only that, but they were being transformed by the message of the resurrection. The Holy Spirit was working in their lives leading them in a new way their lives have been completely completely turned around because of the message of the resurrection of jesus christ there's power in the message of the resurrection of jesus christ the same spirit that raised jesus from the dead now lives in the church and the church for two thousand years has been testifying to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have the resurrection of the church and we have the testimony of, of, the, of the scriptures. The testimonies of, of the scriptures as Paul goes on there. For I deliver to you as of, what, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And last week we looked at, at several of the Old Testament texts that testify to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, was, this, was no, this wasn't new news. 
for the, the students of Scripture. Paul proclaimed the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament text. The prophets of old foretold that Jesus would come, the Messiah would come, that he would suffer for sin, die for sin, be buried and raised again. God said it beforehand so that when, we, when it happened, we could say, oh yeah, he told us that was going to take place. The Old Testament scriptures testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So today we pick up where we left off and we'll consider the last three evidences of the bodily resurrection of, of Christ. Now for some, you are solid in your faith already. You, you've affirmed the resurrection of Jesus Christ and these evidences will only work to strengthen your faith in the resurrection and we need that strength. We need to be daily reminded of the truth of the resurrection for others, maybe you have your doubts. Maybe you're a little bit skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that's not something that we see every day, right? We don't see loved ones come back from the dead. My plea to you today is to weigh the evidence. Weigh the evidence. Look at the historical record, the evidence that we have to the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then render the right verdict. Render the proper verdict. If you properly weigh the evidence, the only, the only judgment you can come up with is in the affirmative. That Jesus really did resurrect from the dead. So if you found your place there in 1 Corinthians, please stand with me as we read God's holy word. I hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me whether then it was I or they so we preach and so you believe amen may the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy inspired and inerrant word and may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts and you may be seated
So we're considering the five evidences of the resurrection. First was the testimony of the church. Second, the testimony of the scriptures. And third is the testimony of witnesses. The testimony of witnesses, eyewitnesses, those who actually saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now again, in court, the testimony of credible witnesses is gold. If you can have a, a credible witness who was there, who, who saw it take place, man, that's good stuff. That, that's golden. That's what the, the prosecuting attorney wants. He wants those eyewitnesses. In God's word, God's re- requirement for criminal trial, back in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, God says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that, has, that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So God's word even demands multiple witnesses credible witnesses before someone is charged with an offense in the old testament law trustworthy witnesses are golden when it comes to accumulating evidence for a a certain verdict what we see here in in in, uh, first corinthians paul tells us that we have a number of credible witnesses first we have the testimony of trustworthy witnesses. We have the the testimony of trustworthy witnesses. Look what he says there, picking up in verse 5, and that he appeared, right? He appeared. Not that he welled up in the heart of. Not that, you know, he lived on in the heart of. He appeared. He appeared. He, He visibly appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now Paul lays out here, he's not going in chronological order. If you go back to the Gospels, you, you see a different chronology here. In the Gospels, we see Mary Magdalene was really the first one who was the eyewitness. She was the first eyewitness. And then uh, there were some ladies who were with her who saw him. Then, then Peter. Then there was a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then he, he appeared to the whole group there. But, but Paul is laying out a case, right? He's laying out a case, and so he gives us credible witnesses right up front. Here's Cephas, Peter. That's another name for Peter. Cephas is another name for Peter. But Peter, he is a credible witness. Here's an honorable man, an upright man, a man who who grew up under Jewish law, who obeyed the Jewish law, who who lived in accordance to to righteousness as uh, any person could. He is a credible witness, and the other 12 along with him. These are credible witnesses. These are men who of honorable status. They're, they're not deceivers. They're not crooks. They're not criminals. But here are honorable men who say they saw him. He appeared to them. We have the testimony of trustworthy, credible witnesses. But Paul doesn't stop there with just Peter and the twelve. He doesn't stop there. No, he he proceeds on to a multitude of witnesses. So we have quality witnesses. Now we have the quantity of witnesses. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, and you can say brothers and sisters. 
He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. So there was a time, this is not recorded in the Gospels, we don't, this is the only place that this is recorded, but somewhere, Jesus, after his resurrection, he, he, he walked the earth. He, he, he stayed around for a while, and he, he stayed with his disciples. He taught them further. And at one time in his 40 days here on earth, after the resurrection, he appeared to 500 people at one time. 500 people saw Jesus preaching and teaching again, just like he had done before his crucifixion. They witnessed it. They saw it. And Paul makes that uh, declaration there, most of whom are still alive. Right at the point in time in which Paul was writing this letter to the church at Corinth, many of those 500 people were still alive. They were still there. And Paul says, if you don't believe me, then hey, you can go and you can go find one of the 500 Go, go do the research yourself. Go, go find out for yourself. Go talk to the eyewitnesses, the 500-plus eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. They witnessed his, his bodily resurrection. They saw him. He was dead. He was crucified. He was dead. He was put in the grave, and they saw him with new life. Healed life perfect life it wasn't a vision it wasn't just something that they felt in their hearts it wasn't a philosophy they saw him over 500 witnesses saw jesus if that weren't enough paul goes a step further and he gives us the testimony of a skeptical witness a skeptical witness not only did he appear to Cephas, then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles again. James, who, who, whom he is speaking of here, is the brother of Jesus. And you say, well, how is he a skeptic? <laughs> James was a skeptic. He didn't believe Jesus who was who he says he was. During the life ministry of Jesus, James didn't believe. None of Jesus' brothers believed. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 tells us this plainly. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you have, are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So they were being sarcastic. Right? If, if you are who you say you are, Jesus, why don't you just go on down to Jerusalem and show yourself? Why don't you do all these things in the temple? Why don't you heal people in the temple, which he did? Why, why don't you do all of these things in the temple? Why don't you go down and present yourself as the Messiah, if you really are the Messiah? But they really didn't believe. 
like Jesus' big brother, right? I mean, here's James and Jude and all the other brothers and sisters there. Don't know how many brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters Jesus had, but he had at least James and Jude, probably others as well. Mary and Joseph likely had a, a few other children after Jesus. And you imagine, here you got big brother Jesus, and imagine James growing up under Jesus. Mary, James! Why don't you be more like your brother? Why don't you be more like Jesus? Right? Jude, quit doing that. Be more like Jesus. So they probably had a little bit of resentment. I mean, here, here they had big brother Jesus. Jesus was perfect. He perfectly honored his father and mother. And now here comes little James and Jude and all the others, and they got to live up to Jesus. I'm sure that wasn't a very happy growing up for them, right? And so when Jesus came out and he began his earthly ministry, well, they were skeptical. They didn't believe. What? You're, you're, you're the Messiah? No, no, man. I, I watched you grow up, right? I, I, I grew up in the same house with you. We ate supper together. We, we did all of those things, right? We, we hung out at the, the stream together, and we, we did all this stuff together. You're the Messiah? They were skeptical. They didn't believe. But yet, something happened. Something happened because in Acts, what do we see? We see James as one of the leaders of the church in the book of Acts. He goes on to, to write an epistle. Not all that took place after this letter to the Corinthians, but, but James would go on to, to write a, a, his own letter, his own epistle in the New Testament. And Jude, the same, same way. But what happened to these skeptics? What happened to these brothers who, who didn't believe in Jesus when he walked and talked and ministered in the world? What happened? What changed their mind? They saw Jesus resurrected. They witnessed him being crucified. They witnessed him dead and buried. They witnessed that and then they saw him alive. They felt the nail prints in his hands and feet. They saw him. And it completely changed their lives. It completely changed their lives. So we have the testimony of trustworthy witnesses, quality witnesses, the multitude of witnesses, and the witness of these skeptics who didn't believe in Jesus when he was involved in his earthly ministry but were changed when they saw him resurrected. You know, efforts to explain away the eyewitness testimonies have, have gone down many different avenues. One of the, the major theories to try to explain away the eyewitness testimony of the resurrected Jesus Christ is the theory, uh, theory of mass hysteria. The theory of mass hysteria. Some scholars have speculated that eyewitnesses merely hallucinated the appearance of Jesus after his death and burial. Now, there's four major problems with this theory. Four major problems with this theory. In his book, Resurrecting Jesus, Dale Allison notes that, first of all, hallucinations are rarely seen by multiple individuals and groups over an extended period of time. For 40 days, Jesus appeared to people over and over and over again. 
that doesn't happen with normal hallucinations, right? That, that, that just doesn't occur. Second, hallucinations are rarely seen by large groups of people, especially groups of more than eight. I don't know what's magical about the number eight there, but uh, apparently, you know, if you're, there's a, a few people who really believe something and they're on the right herbal tea or whatever, they may hallucinate a, a similar vision. But when you get over groups of eight, that's unheard of. You, you don't see that. That doesn't happen. And we have more than 500 witnesses who saw Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Multiple, multiple witnesses. Third, hallucinations have never led to the claim that a dead person has been resurrected. Never at any other point in history has hallucinations ended with the theory or the thought that someone has been raised from the dead. And fourth, hallucinations do not involve a person's enemies. Now, hallucinations do not involve a person's enemies, which is what we're going to get to next. But when you see a hallucination, right, you, you might expect it among his believers, those closest to him, all they might hallucinate, but not his enemies, those who hated him, those who wanted him to go away. But we see in Paul that he saw the resurrected Jesus. So imagine you were sitting on a courtroom jury. And the lawyer came in. And he set before you two witnesses, two credible witnesses that say, I saw this crime take place. Now, if you had two credible witnesses who said, I saw this crime take place, what would your judgment be? Most likely, you would have to say, the crime took place because those credible witnesses said the crime took place. We, we would take their, their testimony. But now imagine if that attorney marched before you over 500 witnesses who said, yes, I saw it take place. I saw it take place. I saw it happen like this. I saw it happen like this. 500, 500, over and over and over again. You see the amount of evidence that you have? With 500 credible witnesses saying that this event took place, the only verdict that you could come up with is that the event took place. That's the only verdict that we have. And there's more evidence than that. But just on the, the fact of the testimony of the witnesses alone, Their testimony demands an, affirm, an affirmative judgment that Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and raised again from the dead. The eyewitness testimony testifies to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have the testimony of the church, of the scriptures, 
and of the 500 plus witnesses. Fourth, we have the testimony of a hostile witness. We have the testimony of a hostile witness. Look at verses 8 through 10 there. Here's where we get to the enemy of Christ. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, the Apostle Paul. For I am the least of all. Excuse me. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Now notice what he says there, last of all, as one untimely born, that little phrase there, untimely born, uh, really the, the phrase that Paul uses there in the Greek has the uh, kind of the, the view towards uh, being stillborn. As to one who was stillborn, as to one who was aborted at birth, born dead. Paul is saying that he was dead in his trespasses and sins. He was dead to the faith. He was walking absolutely against the church. He was walking against Christ. He was an enemy of Christ. He had no faith, but something happened. Something took place that completely changed his mind and transformed his life. He was dead to the faith. He was hostile towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He was an enemy of the cross. He did everything he could to, to put down the movement of Christianity. But God did something in his life But by the grace of God, verse 10, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, any of the other apostles, though it was not, in, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So here's Paul walking as an enemy of the church, trying to kill the church, trying to kill the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in a moment, in a blink of an eye, he completely changes direction. And now, he works harder than anyone else for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter, where are we here? Acts chapter 9 Verses 1 through 10, let me just start a few verses here. Let me read those. This, this gives us the conversion of Paul, who was at that time known as Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Man, that's pretty straightforward. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest and asked him for letters to uh, the synagogues at Damascus so that for this purpose that if he found any belonging to the way if he found any Christians men or women it didn't matter to him he might bring them bound to Jerusalem now as he went on his way 
he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Saul knew whoever this was standing before him, he was Lord, he was Yahweh. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Then the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And, the three, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now in the next verse, Ananias comes to him. The Lord sends Ananias to him, a disciple of Jesus, to come and heal Saul. Then you jump down to verse 19, halfway through 19. For some days, Paul, after he was healed, after he was given his sight back, for some days he was with them, with the disciples at Damascus. And notice this, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. So he went with murderous attempt, attempt to the synagogues in Damascus. But on his way, he met the resurrected Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus in the flesh. He saw his nail-scarred hands and feet. And it changed his life. So when he gets to the synagogues at Damascus, instead of binding up the people, he testifies, Jesus is the Son of God, the resurrected Son of God. His life was transformed in a moment because he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. In a moment, Saul, the enemy of Christ, became Paul, the believer. Paul, the evangelist. Paul, the missionary. Paul, the world changer. And we are here today, large in part, because of the ministry that God did through the Apostle Paul. Praise God that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed Paul. You can believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus because of the testimony of the resurrection power at work in transforming the most hostile of witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus because of the testimony of the church, the scriptures, the overwhelming number of, of eyewitnesses and even at last, at least the, the one hostile witness, the Apostle Paul. And fifth, the fifth evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the testimony of a common message. 
the testimony of a common message. Verse 11, whatever then, whatever therefore, or whether, excuse me, whether therefore it was I or they, whether you heard this message from me or whether you heard it from one of the other 500 plus witnesses, whatever the case may be, so we preached and so you believed. We preach, we proclaim, and so you believe. Paul is pointing here to the unified message of the gospel. There is a common message. The message has never changed. Over 2,000 plus years, the message of the gospel has never changed. Even through multiple persecutions of the church throughout church history, through Nemo's persecution, through Domitian's persecutions, through the, all of the persecutions throughout history, the message of the gospel has never changed. It's always stayed the same. And even though we have so many today trying to, to change the message, it will not change. The message of the gospel is the same. Now, sure, we, we may have different denominations we we disagree on about uh, other matters these other side issues but we believe on the same common message that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and was raised again in accordance with the scriptures on the gospel of jesus christ there is common ground with us, with the Methodists, with the Presbyterians, with, with uh, all of those, right? There's that common ground. There's a common message. And that message never changes. And that's the message that we preach today. That's the message that we pass on today. There's a common message and there's a common faith for those who trust that Jesus died for their sins, was buried and raised again. Church changes. Faces change. The way we do things change. But the message stays the same. You can believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ because of the common message that was preached by Paul and through the ages until today, the message has never changed. Christ died for your sins, dear friend, in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried in a grave for three days, and on the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. And if you believe in Jesus Christ and commit your life to Him, you will be saved historian thomas arnold who authored the three-volume history of rome and was chair of modern history at oxford once one time he said i have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and have been used uh, excuse me have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. 
And notice this. And I know of no other fact in history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. When you look at the evidence of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you must come up with a, an affirmative judgment. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, physically rose again from the grave. So the question is today, dear friend, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Secular culture wants to undermine your faith. And I'm sure if you go on, the, on Netflix and all the other streams this week and on television this week, you'll see a number of documentaries out there that kind of document the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what they document is not the historical record of, of Scripture and all of those documentaries are aimed, many of those documentaries are aimed to shake your faith, to undermine your faith, ground your faith in the pure evidence of the resurrection according to the testimony of witnesses, according to the accumulation of all kinds of evidence. You can believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Students, as you leave home and you leave high school and you go to college, you're going to have professors out there who will try to undermine your faith and try to tell you what, what you should believe because that's what they believe. Don't allow your faith to be undermined. Ground your faith in the proof of Scripture. The evidence that has been accumulated for us in God's Word. Believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps today you're an unbeliever or a skeptic. You're just not sure. You're not sure that you can believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus don't simply accept what secular, our secular culture tells you to believe. Don't buy into to secular culture. Examine and weigh the evidence for yourselves. No other event in ancient history is as well documented as the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And no other event in ancient history has the weight of evidence proving its validity as the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do the research. I challenge you, do the research. Examine the facts. Then believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. 
He was buried and he was raised again, assuring you of eternal salvation in him if you will only believe. Now the challenge is once you weigh the evidence, once you realize the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, don't just believe it as information, but believe it in your heart. Trust Jesus in your heart. Surrender your life to Him. For even the demons believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and tremble at His name, but they don't know Jesus. They don't trust in Jesus. You see, dear friend, you may be here and you might say amen to everything else that was said here today. You believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Bodily resurrection. You can believe that and still be lost. Has your life been transformed by the power of that message? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you come under His Lordship for your life? Because that's true faith. Surrendering your life to Christ. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, I beg you, surrender today. Commit your life to Him. He will save you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that our faith is not a blind faith. We don't have to believe it just because a word and a text, but we can believe it because of the, the amount of evidence that you have given us, Lord. We can weigh the, the evidence of history and prove the bodily resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that we can have that assurance, that you made sure that we could have that assurance in our faith. Lord, even as we believe the facts, Lord, we can still be far away from you. Lord, I pray. Lord, perhaps there's those today. Lord, they believe the facts. They affirm the facts of the resurrection, but they've never trusted in Jesus, never surrendered to him. As Paul surrendered to Christ on the road to Damascus, he did an about face. He went from a hater of the church to a lover of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's any today who've been skeptical, who have just been doing life their own way and just been living life their own way, being Lord of their life, they, sur they, they believe the facts, but they've never surrendered to Jesus. Lord, I pray, bring them to their knees right now. Change their hearts. That they might surrender to Christ and know the power of your salvation in him. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.